InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. Gas prices are high. America's dependence on foreign oil keeps on growing. But some say we can cut that need while keeping American industry vibrant. InfoTrack's Taryn McCall has the story. Taryn? Thanks, Chris. With gas prices spiking at an all-time high, we are more urgently than ever having to think about energy efficiency. For our guest today on InfoTrack, such thinking stretches back 30 years. Nathan Glasgow is with Rocky Mountain Institute and co-author of Winning the Oil Endgame, Innovation for Profits, Jobs, and Security. Welcome to InfoTrack, Mr. Glasgow. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here today. 30 years ago, the head of your institute, Amory Lovins, was ridiculed for taking on the utility industry. What was his radical thought back then? In 1976, our co-founder and CEO, Amory Lovins, wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs titled Soft Energy Paths. And what he did at this time was to go against the conventional wisdom thinking of our energy consumption in our country. Traditional thinking had thought that our demand for energy would rise at a linear rate, increasing upwards and upwards, and that we wouldn't have any increases in efficiency during that time. What Amory proposed at that time is that we would really take what he titled a soft energy path. So as our economy developed, we would find more efficient ways to provide the same services that we get from our energy that we do today. And it actually turns out that he's been quite right, matching the 2,000 numbers within a couple percentage points. So for a quarter century, RMI has been focused on finding the best and cheapest way to do each desired task. So this is in opposition to simply expanding supply for energy without regard for the right amount, quality, or scale of energy. This is not just about increasing the supply line. This might look at things like green buildings, which I've seen a lot in the news lately. That's exactly right. Here at Rocky Mountain Institute, we're an entrepreneurial nonprofit organization, and we focus on a number of different areas of energy efficiency. We do focus on green buildings, as you mentioned, which is ways to make buildings more energy efficient, but also more pleasant to live in and buildings that simply work better. We do consulting practice in the industrial sector, looking at industrial processes and ways to make those processes more efficient all throughout providing better economic returns to the owners. And then we focus also on what we title integrative design, and this is ways of looking at whole systems thinking to problems in all sorts of industries, whether it be industrial, commercial, or even in buildings as well. And this is where our recent report, Winning the Oil in the Game, mainly came out of. The book is subtitled Innovation for Profits, Jobs, and Security. And what it does is look at the oil situation in particular and tries to find ways to first save the oil that we are currently using to use less to get the same energy service. But then we also look to additional methods of supply, including biofuels and save natural gas. The crisis 30 years ago was kind of precipitated by a supply problem or a withholding of the supply. 30 years later, we might be thinking about energy more efficiently, but we're dealing with a resource problem, the finite amount of oil available. That's very true, but we learned a very important lesson 30 years ago. This is during the oil shocks of the late 70s and early 80s. And what we learned is that we have the ability as a country to reduce our petroleum consumption faster than other countries can increase the supply of petroleum coming into the country. So in effect, we have an OPEC level of oil sitting underneath us in energy efficiency. And what I'm talking about here is looking at ways to make our cars and light trucks more efficient, ways to make our 
heavy trucks that move freight on the highway more efficient. Also looking at airplanes, rail, and marine. All sources of transportation, mainly that use oil, can be done more efficiently. And also non-transportation uses, such as industrial and building uses of oil, can also be done more efficiently as well. You'd mentioned biofuels a few minutes ago. Is this the uh, leftover cooking grease kind of fuel we've been reading about? That's not entirely true. There's some potential there to recycle, for example, in biodiesel to use either fryer trap oil or some kind of cooking oil for recycling. But that's actually a, a relatively small amount when you look at the amount of petroleum that we would require. Uh, especially looking out in 2025. So the biofuels I'm speaking about are not the conventional wisdom biofuels made from ethanol that we currently provide roughly two percent of our gasoline today. What I'm talking about is the next generation of biofuels called cellulosic technologies. And what these are is these convert feedstocks such as poplar trees or switchgrass, which is a fast-growing hay, could also use municipal yard or agricultural waste through one of two different processes in order to create essentially cellulosic ethanol, which has about two times the yield per given unit of feedstock input as do the conventional wisdoms today. Altogether, this would allow for us to have biofuels that are competitive without subsidy with the petroleum products. Thirty years ago, the skyrocketing prices of oil, coupled with the reduced availability, rallied Americans to conserve. The same dynamic doesn't seem to apply today. Gas is expensive but available, so the attitude seems to be if you can afford it, buy it. What can you do to rally Americans to the cause now? Because this really requires a shift in thinking. That's very true. In terms of the price alone, research has shown that it really takes gas prices upwards of three dollars or more in order to actually change the behavior of consumers. Now we see with high gasoline tax prices in Europe and Japan that consumers do shift their preferences a little bit, but they do this primarily in terms of shifting the amount of driving they do, not necessarily in which vehicles they choose. It's a relatively weak price signal to the consumer. What we recommend on the policy side is what's called a fee bait, and a fee bait is a combination of a fee and a rebate. The fee would be for an inefficient vehicle, and the rebate would go to the efficient vehicle. It would be structured such that the fees would pay for the rebates, so it would be entirely revenue neutral for either the state or federal treasury where it's administered. Now, we'd recommend that it be done within different size classes of vehicles. So you look at the vehicle new sales fleet and divide it into roughly 10 or 12 size classes. Efficient vehicles within that size class would receive the rebate. Inefficient ones would pay the fee. Therefore, not incentivizing consumers to shift from a larger vehicle to a smaller vehicle, but rather saying, if you want to drive a larger vehicle, for example, such as a SUV or a pickup truck, we would just like you to buy the most efficient one that you can. Where do you realistically see us being 30 years from now in terms of reliance on oil for energy? We think it's entirely possible if this was made a conceded effort to get entirely off of oil within the next few decades by, say, 2040 or 2050. Now, what this would take would be a very conceded effort of all sectors of the U.S. economy. So, this would be business, consumers, and also the military, who I should note is a co-funder of our report, winning the oil endgame. It's quite possible they could become a leader in actually getting the country off oil because of their strategic, logistical, and technological reasons for why they. Would want to become a leader. And your book, Winning the Oil Endgame, is available through the website, correct? Yeah, it's available as a free public download at www.oilendgame.com. Nathan Glasgow, thank you so much for being with us today on InfoTrack. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. I'm Taryn McCall for InfoTrack. Next, how can you know if a registered sex offender lives in your neighborhood? 
facts you'll want to know. Coming up, you're listening to InfoTrack. More after this. 